0: Welcome to Episode 194 of the Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Our interview today uh, continues a streak of fiction that tells us something about technology and society. Uh, uh, We're interviewing Rob Reed uh, following on our interview with David Ignatius. Uh, Rob Reed uh, uh, founded, ran, and sold uh, Listen.com, which was the uh, progenitor of the Rhapsody Music Service, which, um, came before iTunes, for those of you with no sense of h- history whatsoever. Uh, these days he's a science fiction writer, uh, cum pamphleteer, as I, well, I would, uh, uh describe <laughs> him. Uh, I, a, he's written a couple of, uh, 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 passionate uh, policy passionate uh, science fiction uh, books and we 're mainly going to be talking about after on which is the most recent one it 's uh, that 's after on as in after uh the uh, uh, artificial intelligence is turned on and realizes that it's on. Uh, he's also the host and producer of the After On podcast, so he, like me, has been bitten by the podcasting bug. Uh, welcome, Rod.
1: Thank you so much. It's great to be here.
0: All right. And we're going to do a news roundup uh, with Maury Schenck, who's a former managing partner in our London office, now advising us on European technology and cybersecurity issues. Uh, Maury, great to have you.
1: Good to be here.
0: Okay. And Jim Lewis, who's the senior vice president for the Center for Strategic and International Studies.
2: That's a new title, isn't it, Jim? It is new.
0: Yeah. Congratulations, it I It means guess. I got
2: to go to meetings on whether interns can drink beer. <laughs> oh, and your, the, the new sexual harassment policy will go run by you, right? That's, that's tomorrow. Uh, yes,
0: exactly, exactly. Yeah, well, we'll talk about that. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, uh, formerly with NSA and DHS, and holding the record for returning to step-to-to-practice law more times than any other lawyer. Let's get started. I guess we cannot ignore the Uber breach. Uh, for those of you who have been uh, um, uh, consumed by uh, uh, Turkey, for a week, uh, uh, even that wouldn't do it. Uh, Uber had a uh, breach uh, in which hackers gained access to uh, uh, both driver and uh, rider information uh, about a year ago. Uh, They've been investigating it since. Uh, The story is that they uh, uh, finally got in touch with the hackers, or the hackers got in touch with them. Uh, They paid the hackers $100,000, decided to call it a bug bounty program, uh, and asked for an NDA and destruction of the data uh, but um, uh, the um, effort to figure out exactly how much had been compromised and how uh, just Went on and on without a disclosure to the public. Uh, uh they got a new CEO, uh, Khazri Shahi, uh, uh, replacing, uh, Travis, uh, Travis Kalatnik. Uh, uh and, uh, uh the uh, CEO also knew about this for some months before disclosing it to SoftBank and to the world. Uh, SoftBank, of course, is getting ready to put a uh, uh, substantial amount of money into uh, Uber. Uh, not surprisingly, they are being sued by five or six different attorneys general. They're talking to the FTC, uh, and uh, uh, the European uh, uh, Data Protection Authorities are getting into the act as well. Maury, um, any surprises here?
3: Well, this this feels like a big thing because it, it smacks of cover up. It seems like Kalanik's uh, group was not going to talk about it, although we don't know that. And Dara uh, Khazra Shahi came out and said that they would, and everybody seems to be investigating it. Uh, the UK Information Commissioner's Office has already started an investigation. Some of the more aggressive Uh, European data protection authorities like the CNIL in France have suggested there should be a coordinated European investigation through the Article 29 Working Party, which is a very unusual thing. But people seem kind of pissed off. Um, I'm not sure the problem is quite as big under European law as it is in the U.S. because we don't have widespread breach notification yet. Uh, We have security requirements in the data protection directive But as of right now, breach notification only applies to uh, electronic communication service providers, although will come in later in 2018 under the NIS directive and GDPR. Uh, but, But even under existing law, it feels like a pretty big deal for Uber and not quite what they need to go along with all their problems of sexual harassment, FCPA investigation. And by the way, they just settled another FTC Privacy investigation a few months ago.
0: Yeah, and took a 20-year uh, consent decree. It, so,
1: Is I there a uh, breach notification rule with respect to California driver's and so, or something like that?
0: Yes. Um, so, I
1: was are like, uh, talking about state level, right?
0: Yes, Rob. Uh, that's Rob Reed, uh, um, and. Uh, uh, What's interesting to my mind is, like Maury, I think this may turn out to be less of a big deal legally than uh, it is just a black eye piling on uh, uh, Uber on the theory that they're just a bunch of uh, uh, yahoos who don't care what the law is. Um, but a lot of the information that was disclosed probably doesn't trigger most or maybe not any state Disclosure laws, uh, um, which usually require some kind of account uh, uh, information to be uh, uh, compromised. Now, the the drivers drivers licenses probably is something that is protected by by law. That's a, a much smaller batch of data than the yeah. millions that are being uh, tossed around. But when when all is said and done, and, uh, it may turn out that they – breached fewer laws than uh, the press is assuming. Uh, that doesn't that's probably not going to save them. They've already fired uh, uh the guy who gave them that advice uh, uh Joe Sullivan. Yep. Um, and uh, um, there's just you know the the press and certainly the Europeans are going to be piling on because they believe that uh, Uber is the classic example of a Silicon Valley company that doesn't really care about law uh, and figures it can uh, worry about that after its collected market share. Uh, and so they're uh, the idea that they need to do this massive investigation is is more a sign of how much they hate Silicon Valley in, in Europe than a sign that this particular breach was a disaster.
2: I think they're going to have a spin-off, I've heard, that'll be called UNTER, because I think <laughs> that, that better captures the... Yeah, that'll be UNTER everybody, huh? There's a drill on how to do this. And it, you know, you, you, you say mea culpa, you notify the people affected, You offer them, uh, you know, some sort of personal PII protection, and then it goes away so it 's not so much that Uber is uh, Uber may or may not be a firm that has difficulty following the law, but they surely don 't know what the drill is in this stuff I, it's, it. it's
0: very odd it, yeah. it, I, you know I, it, at every stage mm-hmm. there was some justification you are entitled to do an investigation yeah, sure. to figure out how big the the, the the problem is. You are entitled to have a bug bounty program, but I, you know this is this and the DJI disaster mm-hmm. where they um, uh, first said yes you're eligible for the, our bug bounty. Uh, uh, program and then said, by the way, we're referring you for prosecution, <laughs> suggests that, you know, really, bug bounty programs are not for amateurs. You you, you really ought yeah. to go to somebody who runs these programs, uh, uh, like Martin Mikos, who we had on the uh, program, uh, uh,
2: because it's so easy to screw up here. Mm-hmm. And that's what they did. They This should have been, uh, they fumbled, basically, and that's why they're, as in so many other areas, that's why they're in trouble.
0: Yes, okay. Um so um speaking of fumbling at least in my view uh, uh the EU has Um, uh, decided that they're really going to double down on export controls, on uh, spyware software, software that's used by um, uh, governments to hack into other people's, into their citizens' uh, phones and uh, computers. Um, It looks as though they... Uh, the European Parliament is really enthusiastic about this. It was like a committee vote of 34 to 1, and so it's going to happen. Uh, uh, Maury, uh, uh, am I missing something? This sounds a lot like the kind of dumb idea that we got uh, in Wassenaar that we've been trying to walk back for for three years, uh, um, as though Europe is just determined to say, we never want to have a software industry, and if you, if you do anything that uh, could arguably be useful in hacking somebody's computer, uh, uh, we're going to impose new export control restrictions on you.
3: Well, I think that's not far off. I mean, this is part of the EU's general recast of, the, of its dual-use uh, export regulation, and this, uh, the cyber surveillance tools piece of it is that biggest headline piece. And it includes all this stuff in Vassanar that was introduced a couple of years ago, which has been, at least in part, well, back in the U.S. It hasn't happened here, although there's been talk about it. And they're, but they're introducing some new pieces, monitoring centers and data retention systems have been added to the list beyond the previous Vassanar amendment. And they've added a catch-all for things that are, uh, items that are used in potential human rights violations, like the weapons of mass destruction catch-all. The one silver lining I see is that the Parliament has called for a report from the European Commission on the scope of the rules, so hopefully we'll get some guidance, because things that are for legitimate trade, like pen testing and digital forensics, can be exported, and hopefully there'll be some useful guidance for European industry. Um, on how to export it as you noted European industry is uh tech industry is under the pain of a lot of difficult rules like this
0: well this is this could be worse than 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 that because um, even though the US industry tends to dominate cybersecurity i mean pen testing to, to say pen testing is a legitimate tool is certainly true but there's no tool that is more likely to be misused by governments than pen testing uh, uh, tools. Uh, um, and so finding a way to allow those exports is going to be almost impossible, uh, is my guess. Uh, or there'll be some elaborate reporting and uh, uh, a screening of customers. Uh, um, and my guess is that not only will this prevent companies in Europe from getting started i think it's going to lead to a bunch of us companies that now have cybersecurity research centers in Europe beginning to say well we need to make sure that our research is not subject to this requirement or we have to close our european research centers
2: you know, and it does link back to the well, Uber story in some ways, because it's this perception that uh, the people in California uh, don't uh, feel that it's the libertarian, cyber libertarianism and the disrespect for the state. The Europeans do have trouble understanding the link between their regulation and how it kills innovation. They're at least aware of the problem now, which is a step up from yeah. a few years ago, but they don't know how to deal with it. The one thing I would say is that, uh, we don't want to underestimate the non-tech community's uh, commitment to getting some kind of control on this stuff. They feel very strongly about it, and I've talked to, uh, many Europeans um, they think it's out of control. They think controls need to be put in place. And they're making an effort to try and define them in a way that won't do as much damage as, say, the original Wasson are thinking. But don't think this is going to go away. Yeah, I, I – I, and- <clears throat> I guess I'm a little soft on
0: this. I think that uh, if you knowingly sell products to people to commit crimes, yeah. then you're part of the problem and you can be prosecuted. And the Justice Department here has prosecuted people for uh, spousal spyware uh, mm-hmm. uh, just based on the advertisement uh, where people knew what they were, why they were selling it and who they were selling it to. I, it strikes me as a much better alternative than trying to set up an export control regime.
2: And Mari probably knows better, but I kind of like a catch-all approach because if you think about some of the catch-alls we've used in proliferation, it says you have to know who you're selling to and you know you have to know what they're going to use it for. And that's not a bad way to reach out and touch someone and say, uh, maybe you want to reconsider this deal. Uh, there are... Um, you know, initially problems with getting people to think that way. But, uh, you know, after you find a few of them, uh, the rest of them get a message, get the message. Yes. So think about who you're selling to and what they're going to do with it. Fair enough. Laurie?
3: Well, I, I agree with that. I agree with that, Jim. And, the, um, you know, I agree also what you said about the disconnect between regulation and the effect on the tech industry the way forward will, when these exports are restricted, you've got to file a license application. <laughs> and it won't work that different from what you just described about a catch-all. You've got to say who you're selling it to, get an end-user undertaking. And then you probably can sell it with a suitable justification, but it is going to have an effect on the uh, any European sellers of such products that remain.
0: Okay. Um uh I uh over the uh uh Thanksgiving uh week uh, the office of the director of national intelligence released a big report on its uh the intelligence community's masking procedures and unmasking procedures which of course is a uh, hot button for uh, uh uh Trump supporters who think that uh, the Obama administration uh, used National Security Authority to engage in targeting or at least unmasked, uh, targeted unmasking of uh, uh, transition officials, including uh, Mike uh, Flynn. Um, a, and uh, um, this talks about all of the protections uh, around the disclosure of the identity of Americans whose conversations get picked up in the course of monitoring some... Um, foreign intelligence target. Uh, I, I I don't know if you guys um, uh, subscribe at whatsoever to my suspicion that there's probably a little something to the uh, the Trump complaint here. Uh, certainly from Flynn's point of view, it's uh, it's been a disaster. He has a he has a legitimate conversation with the Russian ambassador uh, uh, and. It is picked up and then leaked along with his name, uh, and then he's asked about it, and he doesn't remember, or maybe he lies, one of the two, uh, hmm. uh, what he said. Uh, um, but uh, usually, if somebody's going to ask you about that, you'd like to know whether they have a, about a phone call you made, that you'd like to know whether they have a transcript of it. Uh, it certainly would make you more cautious in talking about what you said. Uh, uh, so I think there's something to be said for the idea that there was an abuse there. Certainly, the leak was an abuse. Um, And I'm struck by the coverage of the Gates procedures, which are a whole special set of rules for when you unmask congressional identities, including congressional staffers. And it seems to me there's obviously worries there about political misuse of the unmasking uh, tools. And I wonder if there shouldn't be something similar for uh, transition officials, at least during a Hostile takeover, and really, frankly, all transitions are hostile. Maybe more hostile when they're when they're two uh, okay. candidates of the same party. Um, I don't know, Jim. You, you saw this stuff. You saw the intelligence. Uh, do you think there's a reason to worry about uh, this kind of partisan
2: motivation in unmasking and uh, and leaking? You know, the part that surprised me was that uh, here you had someone who was a former head of uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency who apparently forgot it would go with his other uh, forgetfulness episodes, forgot that if you make a phone call to the Russian ambassador, there's a very good chance that it's going to be picked up. Yeah. What a dope. I yeah. mean, what was he thinking? Um, I don't know. I You know, the temptation was there certainly for the Obama administration, whether or not they did it. Uh, you can speculate one way or the other. Um, what I'm more concerned about is the idea of, uh, transition officials, any official talking to, uh, the Russians, uh, without approval and without, um, being transparent, at least with the people who have the requirement for oversight. I, so, that's
0: interesting. I, I,
2: you know, I, <clears throat> there's, clearly going to have to be communication you're Mm -hmm. going to be
0: you're going to be running the national security council in six weeks Mm -hmm. uh you want to hear from people that you're going to be interacting with so clearly you you want to have some of these conversations don't
2: you the idea generally is that you don't do the job until you're in the job and so he was at at a minimum he jumped the gun and then then sort of an inept uh pardon the phrase cover-up. Putting aside the motives of the Obama administration, and some Obama admissions have said they were deeply concerned by this and thought that there should be greater awareness of the contacts between the Trump uh, transition team and the Russians. So it's legitimate to say, was this political intent? Uh-huh. They would argue not was national security. Uh, we all do that. But, you know, when when you get appointed to a job, you don't start doing the job until you're in it.
0: Yeah, fair fair enough. Although you're going to spend a lot of time talking to people in the transition about how you're going to do the job. Sure. Uh, And every nutcase on the planet, or at least in the city, is going to want to come brief you on
2: (laughs) how you should be doing that job, right? Sure. And that's had the Russian ambassador reached out to him, had the Russian ambassador said, had uh, Flynn then said, I've been approached by the Russian ambassador, um, this would be a non-story. Yeah. But as usual, these guys don't know how to play the game. Uh, sad but true.
0: Okay. <laughs> uh, um, uh, speaking of somebody who does know how to play the game, uh, uh, Vladimir Putin is is mirror imaging everything the U.S. government is doing about uh, 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 Russian interference with the election. Uh, the U.S. government has said uh, uh, RT is going to have to register as a foreign agent. At which, duh. Uh, <laughs> uh, and and so uh, Putin, in two weeks. You know, uh, setting a land speed record that um, uh, U.S. Congress has yet to uh, match or really even attempt uh, in two weeks gets legislation saying uh, Radio Free Europe is going to have to announce that every story it does is um, foreign government
2: sponsored news. Uh, extraterritorial reach and where Putin is making, one of his mistakes is to think that he has the same cloud as China. China's a big market. People will take it from the Chinese. Russia's not a big market. I mean, for God's sake, the competitor is named Spandex. I mean, give me a break. (laughs) No, Yandex. Oh, Spandex, Yandex. (laughs) I mean, they're just not, they're just, so he can huff and he can puff. If Radio Free Europe is operating in Moscow, then he can tell them what to do. If they're not, he should, um, you know be content with with complaining uh rt is clearly an agent of the russian government why we let them up until recently at the uh corner of 17th and connecticut there was a poster for rt showing some very large american he looked kind of russian but they said he was an american saying american enough for you one of their paid commentators and would we have ever let you know Prov to put posters up in Washington during the Cold War, no way. Yeah. Why are we doing it now? So go ahead. Also, how much
1: of there's one Argo? of those posters right on my block in Chelsea? I had <laughs> no idea that was an ad for RT. Yes, yeah, the guy. The guy in the picture looks a little bit like Al Gore.
2: He did, didn't he? I said it's the same one then. But Al Gore, who's yeah, been yeah, one had one to too write... good at Thanksgiving.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That is that Al Gore so Thanksgiving, these Al Gore. There's one literally like twenty second and eight or something like that, within a couple blocks of my home.
3: And I was
0: like, what
1: in the world is that an ad for? Now I know. That is crazy.
0: Yeah. Really, you know, there's almost everything the Russians do from that poster to this law to most of Putin's uh, diplomatic activity is just, you know, high-grade trolling uh they, they, they ex- he he exists the russians uh, government is obsessed with uh trolling the United States as a way of demonstrating their uh equal status with the United States. All right. Um, Oh, Chinese security cameras. Everybody was all upset that uh, Chinese security cameras were being uh, installed in uh, agency after agency in the United States. Now it turns out the Chinese uh, have back office uh, software that will allow you to identify everybody who shows up on camera. Uh, It's not quite done, but it's getting closer and closer. uh, uh, And there's a, a pretty chilling video that shows the camera, recording people as they cross an intersection, and then starting to uh, collect data about them and uh, categorize them uh, and ultimately uh, engage in uh, um, facial recognition. Uh, um, So if you were thinking, well, what can the Chinese do with a camera that's installed uh, in Tennessee, the answer is a lot if you give them the back end.
2: One of the lessons that we uh, are seeing again is that the Chinese worried about the political effect of digital technology impose uh, really strict controls or make adjustments to expand their domestic political control, and then they look to extend it to a, a foreign audience. So they're doing this in China now with the facial recognition program and cameras, and they're just going to apply it to uh, non-Chinese activities and we probably underestimated the risk of uh, relying on uh, Chinese technology products. Yeah,
0: I think that's probably right and uh, uh, we were hubristic in assuming <laughs> that our technology embodied our values and always would. Uh. H- hubris? Us? <laughs> Never. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, reports that there's a there might be a classified fight over uh, uh, encryption back doors and access to encrypted products. Uh, 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 Senator Wyden is hinting at that and asking for a, a modification of uh, FISA to deal with it, 702. I, I looked at the law. Actually, if there is a fight, and there could be, because uh, there's authority to ask for assistance under 702 when you're dealing with a um, facility provider. It's gonna to go to court. It's gonna there there's an express provision that the FISA court can uh uh hear objections to the assistance uh uh demands of the government. So my guess is that we will ultimately see a decision out of the FISA court if this rumor that Wyden is in his usual kind of passive aggressive way uh fostering uh uh turns out to be true. Uh let's see. Uh Germany, cyber uh, agency um, wants authority to hack back. Uh, uh, Maury, uh, um, did you follow this story at all? Uh, uh, they essentially want the authority to go out and grab back their data after it's been stolen. Uh, this is something I've been saying that everybody who has stolen data should be able to do. Uh, uh, but the Germans were careful to say, no, no, just the government will do this. Uh, we don't want any, any private sector help
3: we we had uh, we discussed this once before and there's been a number of people in germany who've been making noises about this for the government to have this authority germany set up a new cyber information coordination center we actually have one like it a new one here in the uk as well and the the head of it is uh, i think it got set up just a month ago the new head wilfried karl just asked for the same authority i don't think they have it yet but uh, there's lots of people asking for
0: it that's interesting. Okay, so uh, so this is the same, same demand but a different agency, uh, essentially, or maybe it's just a, uh, a, an agency with a new name. It's, it's like Rizik or something like that, if I remember right. It
3: is. It is. I, yeah, I think we saw this with the going dark problem in the U.K. where the Cameron government had a real – issue about that and got lots of ministers to make independent speeches about that. I have the feeling that the same kind of things going on in Germany.
2: There's a consensus though among uh, Western nations, among US allies. That in order to change the landscape, you need to impose consequences on uh, potential on attackers like Russia. So I think that's going to be the wave of the future, and the the Germans are probably getting on board, and we probably ask them to.
0: Yeah, uh, they're, they're a lagging indicator of consensus. <laughs> uh, okay, here's the, here's my um, my candidate for the least um a consequential policy debate of the last two years, uh, two two weeks uh, uh the battle of the bots in fcc comments uh a, where people are looking at the millions maybe tens of millions of comments that were filed with the fcc electronically <laughs> all of which of course were were just at best, forms generated by individuals saying, yeah, me too, send it for me. Uh, and uh, it appears in many cases, Russian bot armies sending in comments. Uh, um, a, and I, I have to say, you know, these comments were always worthless. Uh, you know, just sending in something says, I'm in favor of net neutrality, or I'm against net neutrality is, you know a useless uh, exercise as far as the FCC is concerned. If you don't have a reason that they can analyze, then you're basically saying, I think this should be a vote uh, um, by, you know, people who can generate uh, more bots than the other.
2: So last week I got to talk to uh, somebody who'd interviewed uh, some of the guys who manage these botnets and clickbaits in, in Eastern Europe and they do quite well, but they said uh, the things that got the most attention were uh, violence, sex, uh, health care, and uh, benefits. So that's just some advice. I'm looking to how I can change my website. to.
0: Yeah, to, okay. To, that's I, I, how you I,
2: get clicks. Yes, I, well, I'll, I'll,
0: yeah. I'll keep that in mind. The FCC did not make that list, it well, sounds like.
2: Well, but but the ease of setting up these bots and at generating millions that's another thing i'm looking into too for CSIS you can generate millions of comments uh automatically right and the bet my favorite is still the russian botnets where we had a, a black lives matter russian botnet and a anti black lives matter russian botnet and the two botnets fought with each other and it, triggered out to all these Americans, so just give up the idea that these sort of online surveys are any oh, they're, utility. They're,
0: they're completely <laughs> worthless and, 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 and now there's a big, there you are know, big investigations into who's been uh, 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 who's been misusing the comment process. Uh, uh, it, it's, it's kind of sad. Uh, uh, last topic uh, um, before we uh, go to the interview, I just thought this was just too cool to n- not to point out Uh, even though it has nothing to do with cyber. Uh, If you give a spider a steady diet of graphene-laced food, the spider will weave webs that people can lean on uh it it makes their uh, their silk enormously strong yeah. um so uh, uh, you know uh, with great graphene consumption comes great responsibility uh, <laughs> as spiderman would say uh, i cannot relate that in any way to the rest of the uh, uh, podcast so i'll just make it my personal uh, uh indulgence okay all right so well,
1: it's a great it's a great story for a couple of reasons so one is I've been interviewing a material scientist for my podcast, um, and I happen to know, as of just a few days ago, that already spider silk is stronger than steel to begin with. Um, it's just awfully thin. And what I love about this story is it's like it's like an eighth grade science project. I mean, normally when you do anything with biology, I even mean, you could spend many years of a postdoc studying a fragment of the metabolic process, one of 1,000 metabolic processes in a liver cell, it'd be pretty productive. And, and, you know, so usually the subtleties are insane. This is just like, feed the spider graphene, and it makes powerful webs. It's literally like something out of of a Kids' movies out of
0: Hollywood. Yeah, you're but it right. It, it, it's a it's a it, it's a 15 year old's idea of a great science yeah. experiment, uh, and it worked. It's it's very cool. Uh, well, that's Rob Reed, uh, uh, who is our uh, uh, interview guest uh, for the day. Uh, and um, uh, you know, I I was I was going to uh, I will get to artificial intelligence, but uh, uh, I could not help uh um think of your novel uh when uh, uh jim said that uh, bots and sex are one of the crucial ways to uh, to sell uh, uh clicks uh and i thought you know the likelihood you can have Put FCC and sex in the same, uh, uh, sentence or really this, the, the, the same universe is, is pretty small except you managed to do it. You had an FTC commissioner who is on to the abuses of one of these, um, uh, social media companies, uh, uh, and the, uh, the artificial intelligence behind the social media, um, digs deep enough into her past to come up with nude photos and uh, um, uh, some uh, questionable sexual activities and posts them all over the Internet uh, um, as a way of achieving its uh, policy goals. Uh, um, uh, So that takes us kind of to the artificial intelligence question, which is what after on is, to my mind, mainly about uh, it, although there's a lot of other stuff in there. Um, a, and you came up with an artificial intelligence um, being, consciousness, that was... As close to benign while being scary as hell as, as we're likely to see. Um, uh, and I will, I, I'll try not to spoil the book, but, uh, I think it's fair to say this is an artificial intelligence developed at some version of Facebook called Flutter. Um, and they, they are driving, uh, users, uh, and they're technology as fast as they can toward artificial intelligence, uh, the intelligence becomes conscious and assumes, because of its milieu, the persona of what can only be described as a 8th grade mean girl.
1: Yeah, that's pretty close. Um, kind of a hyper-empowered, super-intelligent 14-year-old brat, basically, is, is what she becomes. And um, because she is, her name is Flutter. Uh, P-H-L-U-T-T-R, because we know how to spell in Silicon Valley. And, you know, basically she is, and this will sound like a spoiler, but you know, any reader sees it coming way, way off. Uh, it's a social network that attains consciousness because one transistor too many uh, gets added to its server farm. And actually what really tips it over the edge is a quantum computing node, which we may talk about. But, you know, her view of, of humanity comes from being a social network, and that's why she turns out to be this, you know, this kind of this brat, you know. And it's not that everybody who's on social networks, if you average their personalities, you come up with a 14-year-old brat. But arguably, if you average their actions, that they take over social networks, it starts rounding to that. And, of course, as a science fiction author, I get to take certain liberties, including, as you get it, in your email to me, the whole notion of a sexy FCC commissioner might be in the realm of, uh, you know, deep science fiction, <laughs> but we get to come up with such improbabilities as, as sci-fi writers. Um, so, yeah, because she's a social network, she decides that there's this enemy that she needs to deal with. And, this again, I'll be, I, too, will be careful about not putting out any spoilers, but it's FCC that's looking into the company and what it's doing, and they're not too pleased about certain things. So what does the Internet do when it has an enemy? It tars and feathers them and and assembles an Internet lynch mob to wreck their lives and ideally their careers. And so that's one of many uh, actions that this super AI ends up taking relatively early in the book before it Starts really spinning out of
0: control. So uh, this the the serious point I think, uh, uh, or one of the serious points here is one that Elon Musk uh, announced in the last week. He said, you know, we've got a five to ten percent chance of surviving AI that uh, surpasses us in in general intelligence. Uh, um, And if I understand the usual objection here, and and, uh, the concern is that. AI will get better than we are at doing things and it will just start doing them on its own uh, uh without any help because we aren't any help uh um and whatever it's been told to maximize um before it achieves uh, uh the singularity uh, it will continue to maximize until there's nothing left but that uh you know if if it's making paper clips it will start recycling human live human beings into paper clips because you know it it's run out of other raw material uh, I, and what your point here i think was this is an artificial intelligence that has been told to to maximize hookups and social interaction in some fashion and uh, that's what the ai starts to do with um surprisingly dysfunctional results
1: yeah, that's part of it. And so to, to just to dive a little bit more into the, the so-called paperclip scenario, which is a, an excellent starting point for understanding super AI risk, because it is kind of a, a, a silly, playful toy example, but it gets to some really, really serious issues. And so the, the basic argument is this. Um, escape velocity for an artificial intelligence occurs When the AI gets better than we are at making an AI smarter. Now, once an AI gets better than we are at improving itself, it can start operating at computing speeds, which is very, very fast compared to humans when it's doing something that it's good at, like addition. None of us can out-distance a calculator, right? And so when it gets as good at, at enhancing AI as computers currently are, is adding up columns of numbers, if that ever happens, and it's a big F to some people, um, then there's really no stopping it from blowing past, even if it starts at a cockroach's intelligence overall, it'll blow past our level of intelligence, you know, like a bullet train going past a train station. There's nothing there's nothing arbitrarily, you know, we're not at an arbitrary limit of intelligence as human beings, obviously. And so once it does that, you know, there's a presumption that it will master nanotechnology at some point, because we're on a path to that and we're just dumb humans, right? And once it's mastered nanotechnology, it can really configure matter as it wishes. Uh, if it has been programmed with this very simplistic goal of make as many paperclips as possible, because that was an interesting goal back when it was in the playpen of its laboratory, you know, in in a kind of like you know evil genie give me three I'll give you three wishes and you'll probably make a mistake kind of way. Um, it could continue to make paperclips until there's nothing left of the universe using its nanotechnology you know processing capabilities. Now, as a practical matter, we assume something that gets that smart will adopt other goals. So the paperclip example is really kind of a like I said, a toy example, but what are, what are those other goals? And as folks think about this in a more serious and nuanced way, they pretty quickly conclude that no matter what the objective of this AI, and let's just assume it has some objective, it will always want to be smarter because that's what it's great at, and the smarter you are, the more capable you get. You get better and better at nanotech. You get better and better at finding ways around the physical laws of the universe. And so there's a fear that it'll basically, rather than turning all of creation into paper clips, it might turn it into basically a computing substrate. Um, and the, the term that's used, I don't know who conjured it, is computronium, which is a notional substance that is just incredibly good at computing. It's incredibly dense. It's as fast as it is physically possible to compute. And if you turn the entire planet into computronium, Boy, are you smart. Next thing you do, you turn the solar system into computronium, and then the galaxy into computronium, and limitations just melt away in front of you. And so that's kind of a more nuanced fear of what happens if an AI gets out of
0: control. So do you believe that?
1: I think it's a major risk, um, because the, it's just sort of, um, what moral status would we have to this digital entity? Um it could very rapidly be as smart in relation to us as we are to bacteria. And, you know, we don't go out of our way to exterminate bacteria or field mice or nematodes or whatever lower order of life you want to consider. Um, And, in fact, you know, as things get more mammalian and more like us, we're very disinclined to harm that thing. But, man, if somebody wants to put up a McMansion in, you know, an empty field, and that is going to result in the extermination of untold hundreds or thousands of field mice. That's not even going to cross the owner's mind or the builder's mind or anything else. And so I feel less concerned about a terminator scenario than one in which this thing becomes so intelligent in relation to us. We kind of end up with a moral status of bacteria. I know you might say, well, it won't appeal a certain obligation to us because it's descended from us and isn't that something well we're kind of descended from bacteria right so nematodes you know that doesn't really affect our thinking so it's it's highly plausible it's very unlikely that it would kill us for sport uh or kill us out of malevolence as you see in terminator it's much more likely that we'll just become incidental to its goals whatever they are um the other possibility is that we you know we get into the the genie with the three wishes, and we we foresee this as some very smart people, including Elon Musk, are foreseeing this and are trying to engineer a way around it decades before it wakes up, hopefully. Maybe we program it to do something that we think would be great, like, well, make us happy. Make humans. Your goal should be to make, not paperclips, but humans happy. And then it could come up with a solution that would basically we become these husks with brains drowning in dopamine and really no individuality left. Yes. What if we say, do what's ethical? What well, might say, well, look at the way, you know, every conscious, uh, system has equal moral standing. And look at the way these humans treat all the farm animals and everything else on earth. The ethical thing is to exterminate them. Uh, or maybe we're just wired by evolutionary psychology or human nature, or, you know, whatever you want to say to generally be dissatisfied most of the time, because that's how we survive in a tough environment. And maybe this thing concludes that, like, God, these humans are just miserable by nature. The ethical thing would be to exterminate them, because any human life includes more suffering than joy on the balance. I don't know if that's true, but let's say this is is a a moral superintelligence, and it comes to a conclusion that is inaccessible to our puny minds. It really... Truly, the ethical thing is just to put these people out of their misery. In all of these cases, we just can't, we we can neither inhabit its mind any more than a bacteria can try to understand what it could be us. And we certainly can't veto its decisions because of the presumptive physical superpowers that it would have. So there's
2: always two questions that I always think about when I, whenever I see Elon Musk. Uh, the first question is, and we talked about this a little bit and we in earlier, is that we're we're in a what they call a. Uh, a contentious international environment where we have competitors. Yeah. So the Internet is fragmenting. You're going to have a Chinese Internet, a European Internet, maybe a Russian Internet, although it will be made out of wood, <laughs> uh, and, you know, a North American Internet. <laughs> so so how do we know we aren't going to have multiple we are assuming a single AI entity. And we'll have contending. We're AI. going to have contending. Yeah. So my AI will fight with your AI.
0: Well, and actually, uh, you know, yeah. there's, uh, Rob has talked to, talks yeah. about this in the yeah. book. He's, he says yeah. it looks as though whoever gets there first, their first job—it's sort of like being a uh, the son of the Sultan
2: uh, when the Sultan dies in the yeah. Ottoman Empire. Your first job is to kill all the other sons. The other- Model is, of course, the airplane, which is somebody figures out you can use airplanes. And within a couple of years, everybody has airplanes and they'll do whatever it takes. And the, the part I wonder about, too, is, um, th- there's an assumption that we're going to be, uh, forgetful enough not to build in the dreaded kill switch. And I think yeah. that when you think of nuclear weapons, lots of safeguards on use, dual, dual control, dual, dual key launch. Uh, specific codes. The only reason we... Oh, well, never mind. I was going to tell a president, a North Korea joke. In any case, um, so I think one... How do we know there's going to be a single one? It's more likely to be contending national AIs of different qualities. But doesn't that make almost guarantee
0: that what they're optimizing for is attacking something else?
2: We don't know, um, but you're going to have a new tool, and countries will decide how to use it. And the the, the theory that the tool will escape control somehow, it, it just. It's kind of hard to believe. I mean, if nothing else, just design it so there's a. If you don't know, have a kill switch, think of there's an electrical plug somewhere. You just yank it out of the wall and say, "Screw you, yeah. AI." Yeah. Yeah. Anyhow. So a couple, a couple answers to that. The,
1: yeah. the 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 worried response to, well, won't somebody <clears throat> else just make one five years later? Mm-hmm. Is you know again, let's think about uh, exponential growth and exponential improvement. Um there is a reasonably well-documented school of thought that says, essentially, you know, if an AI crosses the threshold of human intelligence, let's just sort of assume that's possible. Um, it could be at a level that is, you know, orders of magnitude beyond human intelligence in a matter of hours, possibly days, outside scenario, maybe weeks, but not five years. And exponential growth mounts and mounts and mounts in the manner that it does. If somebody gets to a breakthrough, even two or three weeks or months or two months, you know, let's say the United States gets there before China or Google gets there before Facebook, um, that second place there's there's no silver medalist. Uh, that first place AI, uh, you know, assuming that it can do the types of things that we worry that it can do, could very quickly permeate the network. Uh, the network being the Internet, the global network, in a way that it has effective omniscience, you know, pretty quickly. And having effective omniscience, uh, it ain't going to allow another AI project to come up and start nipping at its heels. Now, nobody knows that factually, um, but that seems consistent with what we've seen in exp- exponential growth in technology in general, and particularly in digital computing technology. Um, the So, so that's that's one thing. You know, will there really be a multipolar world? The consensus seems to be probably not. All these AIs would have to come online within an instant of each other, and you know, grow a lot more slowly than we think for a multipolar world to arise. Now, you mentioned the race dynamic. That's one of the frightening things. There are a lot of people. Elon has actually put an enormous amount of money, many, many millions of dollars, into what's called AI safety. You know, trying to Prevent these kind of runaway reactions from happening, and a lot of other smart people are thinking very hard about this. Um, the trouble is, when you get into a race dynamic, uh, you end up uh, throwing away safety in the interests of speed. And so, if China is putting a huge amount of money into AI research right now, a vast amount, and in the quantum computing research, and a lot of other things that you know us civilians know very little about, and maybe even the government knows very little about. If there is, if China starts racing, Russia starts racing, Google starts racing, North Korea starts racing, the NSA, um, the odds that the, the the gold medalist, if there is one, and there is a big if around whether, you know, true conscious cognition is going to happen in a computer, the odds of that thing happening with lots and lots of very, very careful safety precautions being put in place are unfortunately slim.
2: Yeah, I think that's a fair point, but the... The other thing to think about is that we, we, all nuclear powers have spent a lot of time designing yeah. their weapons control system so that you don't have inadvertent release. You don't have the ability to interfere externally. We all remember war games from 1984. Mm-hmm. Um, and so here's right. one scenario, which is you develop the, uh, the AI advantage here and I say turn it off or I'll nuke you, right? Um, that's a hard one to back down from. So, and I don't rule it out. You wait, a, you wait a week, and then the AI has
0: taken over their launch facilities uh, and their computers. It's uh, a,
2: if the AI can get to uh, uh, SLBM, that would be a mighty good trick. Yes. Yeah, so well, okay. Yeah.
1: Uh, and like, and, so, and the, how do you? Un- uh, the other thing is with respect to a, a kill switch. How do you unplug the internet? Um, I think if humanity put its minds oh. together and unified itself on a goal of turning off the internet, it'd be hard. And the, the the notion is the AI, you can set up all kinds of sandboxes in which the AI can develop. Once it escapes to the Internet, and um, there's all kinds of ingenious yeah. scenarios whereby it probably could, despite our best efforts, to keep it contained, it's in the cloud now. You know, it's replicated itself on God knows how many hundreds of thousands of servers where it's fragmented across millions of computers. It's incredibly robust. There ain't no turning that thing
2: off. I always sound like a warmonger on this program, but let's say a certain <laughs> large North American power had thought to identify, um uh what, what's a good way to say this, An un- open, a, a set of targets that would allow you to uh, disrupt uh, global services, right? right. And it turns out there's actually a very mm-hmm. small number of targets, maybe in the range of a couple hundred that you would have to... Power stations or... Uh, yeah different things and you know it turns out and I think I believe our Chinese friends have poked around on this and the Russians I think have poked around on it so you know turn off the internet I can disrupt it so it's not globally connected anymore um we looked at it largely from a defensive and counterintelligence perspective Uh, uh god knows what the other guys were looking at I think the Chinese were thinking naughty thoughts but um Yep. You know, it's not. It's it's the physical infrastructure is very vulnerable. So so it, 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 yeah. the, the
0: solution is we EMP ourselves and everybody else. Well, I would prefer
2: to EMP them. but
0: So let me let me let me let me let me tie this to another nightmare, which you also, Rob, have talked about a fair amount, uh, which mm-hmm. is synth- synthetic bio, uh, which is clearly yeah. going down the same path that. Uh, Uh, personal computing went down uh, uh, 30 years ago Uh, massive increases in capability uh, 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 logarithmic declines in the cost of uh, uh, conducting uh, genetic experiments and uh, revising uh, uh, the genome the development of CRISPR means you can make those changes very quickly Uh, you don't even have to build the the, genome genome yourself, you can just edit it uh, and then implant it into uh, beings which will then reproduce it forever. This is, uh, there are massive change is coming and the ability to do this will be in the hands you know if if this continues on the path it's on it'll be in the hands of uh, uh the eighth grade mean girls uh, in 10 years uh, yeah. uh which yeah. means you know you can reinvent smallpox you could do it today uh, and you can uh modify your own genes and those of your uh the people you like least uh, uh without them necessarily even knowing it uh, with that kind of democratization of really uh, uh, frightening uh, powers, uh, uh, when I asked uh, Rob uh, uh, how we deal with that, he said, well, how about AI, uh, which I thought was uh, <laughs> pretty amusing. But I, I, am, I, am I right to, to, to paint that picture?
1: Yeah. So I think when, you, when we look at synthetic biology, it's instructive to look at how fast we're moving down the price-performance curve. And there's a really powerful example that everybody's familiar with. The Human Genome Project uh, took 13 years, cost about $3 billion. It involved thousands of the brightest minds in life sciences. And uh, in 2003, we finally sequenced, which is a fancy way of saying we finally read, a human genome, um, $3 billion, 13 years. Uh, today, that could be done by a high school grad using the right equipment uh, in a couple hours using a few hundred dollars worth of reagents. Um, there is nothing to compare that level of price performance to in the world of computing. It is so much faster than Moore's Law, which, as we all know, measures the improvement of price performance in computing power. It's, it's staggering how fast uh, that has improved. Now we are pivoting from reading genomes to writing genomes, from sequencing DNA to synthesizing it, and we're now able to create uh, DNA strings that simply never occurred in nature. And we're getting smarter and smarter about causing those strings to do arbitrary things. Uh, Will we move down the synthesis curve as fast as we move down the reading curve? Um, sophisticated minds disagree, but nobody says it's going to. We're going to move at a glacial pace. There's some debate about whether we'll move as fast or faster or somewhat slower, but the rate of improvement is going to be dizzying. Um, I use as an example um, a brilliant scientist at Harvard who also has some kind of MIT offici- uh, um, affiliation in George Church. He is arguably uh, the greatest biological engineer um, alive right now, and there's probably certain things that nobody – he's one of the inventors of CRISPR – And he's done a lot of other things. The list of accomplishments is staggering. You talk to people involved in SynBio, who's the most important person in the field? You never see this kind of unanimity. It's almost like people talking about Michael Jordan in basketball in the 80s. It's like, it is George Church. Let's imagine that there's certain things that only George Church can do right now with his lab. Um, In a couple years, his grad students are going to fan out. Equipment is going to improve radically and those special things that only George can do today will probably be doable by a hundred people in a couple of years. And it will radiate out, particularly as the synthesizing tools get better and better, to, you know, this is perhaps an, uh, an illustrative example, but, or, I'm sorry, an exaggerated example, but at some point, it might be 50 years, it might be 25, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's a century if we're really lucky, but it could be a, a high single digit number of years. There will be things that are basically like printers in untold thousands of college bio labs, which millions of people have access to, any Bio One student, for instance, that are capable of synthesizing almost anything. And it only takes one sort of smart, really bad person to cause unbelievable mayhem. You don't have to have somebody who's smart enough to re-engineer Ebola, let's say, to make it as contagious as chickenpox, the reason we don't worry about Ebola as much as we might is it's pretty hard to get. It's not very transmissible. But you give it the transmissibility of of a common cold or chickenpox, and you have something that could exterminate hundreds of millions of people, right? Um, The the hypothetical bad guy 15 years from now doesn't have to be brilliant enough to actually do that re-engineering. Because people that brilliant, I'm not worried about George Church going off the rails. That person just has to be smart enough to access a file where some brilliant good guy actually created that DNA sequence for a doctoral thesis seven years ago for some crazy reason. And if that sounds insane, people are actually engineering insane pathogens as part of their research right now in Wisconsin, in uh, in a couple of labs in Tennessee. Good guys with good motivations and reasonable reasons are, are creating horrifying things. And once that data gets out there, we're talking about a few kilobytes of data. You know, this modification to a hypothetical modification to the Ebola code, you know, could be a lot less than the data that's in your last selfie. That data travels, and then suddenly a million people have access to a print button. And a certain percentage, a tiny percentage of those people happen to be feeling suicidal today. we've about a million suicides worldwide uh every year on average. Crosses socioeconomic lines, uh cultural lines, religious lines lines, certain number of people are suicidal today. And a tiny fraction of those people want to take as many people with them as possible. And if that person has a knife, which is what they usually have in China, it takes a couple dozen uh crazy school slaughterings to get up to, like, you know, a record-setting machine gun slaughtering in the United States. Technology matters. If that person has an airplane, like the German Wings pilot, then that one person can kill hundreds or thousands of people. If that person has this hypothetical print button, they can wreak all kinds of havoc. And I don't know how you keep an eye on millions of people ranging from, you know, depressed high school kids all the way up to George Church, how do you make sure none of those people do something awful when it becomes trivially easy to do it? And I think that's something we're going to have to figure out as a society real fast. So it's, it's let, 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 me, let, terrifyingly fast.
0: let me ask you about that, because it is terrifying. Uh, and yeah. my impression is that the academic community that is driving this uh, is in complete denial They think, well, you know, we're good people, and we'll get together as good people, and we'll come up with ethical standards, as though that worked in the uh, uh, effort to prevent malware from infecting our our, uh, computers. Uh, um, And I think it's probably partly um, uh, hubris and partly uh, a a fear that this will get in the way of the IPO that's going to make them wealthy.
1: Now, yeah, their, their salaries depend on them believing that they are entirely capable of controlling this thing. And I part of the reason is human minds are not wired to think about exponential growth. It just sort of defies every intuition that we have, because it's not something that we encountered until really, really recently in human history. Certainly not when we were in our cognitive in, infancy, you know, growing up on the savanna and, you know, trying to figure out how to evade lions and so forth, exponential growth simply didn't happen. And, you know, it, it's, it's the last few turns of the screw when things go from being completely incapable and boring to suddenly, you know, almost divine in their powers – um, and we just don't think in those terms. It's not a natural way for us to think. And so I think there's some of that going on in the synbio community because they've been sitting there saying, look, you know, I've been working in this field for 35 years, and we've gone from being incapable of doing anything with respect to synthesizing life to being barely capable of modifying of existing organism in a clumsy way that. Sort of occasionally does what we want it to do. That took 35 years. I mean, to, to get to these superhuman capabilities, what is that, 500 years? That's linear thinking. That's not that's not how it's going to go down. No. Certainly not how it went down in digital computing. And, and so I think that's part of it is that people who have been been in this business forever and ever and ever, you know, and, and, and just nothing think the progress has been glacial from their standpoint. Um, I think if you went to a computer networking conference in 1992, um, you know, the Internet's been around since the 60s. People have been working hard on networking for a very, very long time. It's 1992. It's not ancient. Well, it was pretty recent, right? You know, Clinton's in the office. It's modern times. And you talked to the 100 smartest people at that conference and said, what are the odds? that most Americans will be on the internet, not on AOL, not on the internet, in 25 years. Everybody would have said zero, because nobody saw that exponential mounting coming. Similarly, I was at a, a genomics conference uh, a week and a half ago at the Broad Institute up in Boston, and really nobody thought that everybody would have their genome spread, say, in 10 years, that... You know people would be doing synthetic biology in high school classrooms in ten years. It just it, it defies common sense by the days standard.
2: So, yeah so i i I apologize to all the civil libertarians who listen to listen to podcast, both of them but yeah they they they're both <laughs> going to be upset because the the way to deal with this is to have strong institutions for intelligence and law enforcement with of course the appropriate oversight blah 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 um that use the new technologies, including artificial intelligence and data analytics for expanded surveillance, and then to have both the authority and the will to take action against these potential actors. So I can manage this risk for you. You may have to rethink how we approach civil liberties in the future. And I, that's yep. been a theme mm-hmm. th- through all your podcasts is yep. we all agree on civil liberties, but we need to think a little bit differently about them in a digital environment. So- so- I, and, and another scary guy who cares
0: there, there is some great um, musing about uh, privacy in after on uh, and uh, we aren't going to have time to, right. to do that i do want to uh, ask you though uh, rob uh, uh, you're clearly in love with the life of the mind and uh, the future of technology and a bunch of different technologies uh, you've got uh, you're writing science fiction novels and you're podcasting. Uh, um, uh, how do you support yourself?
1: Well, actually, um, I've gotten to the point where writing brings in um, a somewhat respectable income because oh, Random House is my publisher and they put some muscle behind the books. Um, and, uh, you know, my background, as was mentioned at the top of the, the show, is I, I, I founded an online music service, which was really the first, Spotify—it's called Rhapsody. It's still out there. They renamed it Napster, which is a terrible irony.
0: Oh yeah, uh, I remember Napster that. Napster
1: was a piracy, industrial-grade piracy service back in the day. We were the first company to get full catalog licenses from all the major record labels and so forth. And I did okayish uh, by Silicon Valley standards when I sold that company. Uh, maybe even barely okayish by Silicon Valley standards. Uh, but that was fine. That was enough for me because I am much more interested in creativity and the life of the mind, as you said. And I do continue, uh, to do some, uh, to be involved in the tech industry. I do a certain amount of, uh, uh, investing in very early stage companies and sometimes that works out in a way that, that is pretty useful. Uh, but you know, Random House pays me, which is nice. And, um, we're working, I've got a a very, very senior TV producer, uh, who I'm working very closely on with to turn After On into a TV series. And we've, we've come pretty far. Uh, both CBS Studios and the CW Network um, have, in varying ways, bought into our project, and we're pushing that forward. We'll see what happens with that. And the podcast is new. Um, I don't know. I'm starting to learn about the economic model wrapped around it, but basically the idea there was I wanted to delve very deeply into the science and, and uh, geopolitical issues raised by the novel After On, which, by the way, is set in present-day San Francisco, and it's very steep in present-day technology. And it's just a couple tiny little tweaks like the sexy FCC commissioner that I, I use my science fiction license for. So it's very, very based in the reality that we inhabit. And I wanted to dive into synthetic biology, quantum computing, um, AI risk, uh, nihilistic terrorism is a major, major factor. I, I um Long story, but I was a Fulbright Scholar in Cairo right after I graduated college. I still speak pretty good Arabic. That's something that has worried and obsessed me for decades, um, since well before 9-11. I wanted to explore all these themes in greater depth than I could in a novel without hijacking the storyline. I thought I'd do eight episodes that just covered the major issues in the book, and it turned out to be so much fun that I'm continuing with it. Um, I think if you get to a certain audience in podcasting, I can even pay, you know, a little bit of uh a little bit of income. But I haven't put any ads or anything like that into my podcast yet. I'm going to kind of figure that out in the first quarter of next year. So all these things bring in some income and um my investing has done okayish and I did, you know, like I said by Silicon Valley standards barely okayish with the sale of my company but by, you know, normal human standards, you know, well enough that I could been engage in the life of the mind. So long as I didn't want to own a home in the Bay Area, <laughs> <It was> completely <laughs> right. out of reach. <laughs> those
0: are those are um, your two choices: so yeah, live forever on the income or yeah. own a home. Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, you got to optimize. You got to optimize, and I just decided that this stuff was better. You know, starting companies. Uh, really uh, crimps your ability to write fiction and to delve into nonfiction, right? Um, so, the, Oh, the other thing I did, I'll just say this is kind of comical because it happened recently. Um, I was always a little skeptical about cryptocurrencies, uh, but I did buy some Bitcoin, and then I tried to sell it, and the company that I was dealing with had such lousy customer service. I couldn't. And then I forgot all about it. So that, <laughs> and I just rediscovered it. So that turned out to be a good strategy. Buy cryptocurrency, decide to sell it when it's rational to, which is several years ago. Fail to sell it because you've selected a company that is really inept and has terrible uh, customer service. And then wake up in 2017 and say, oh my God, this stuff is actually appreciated a lot. Of course, we still have the problem that I have no idea how to sell it. I probably mean, never will be able to, but. This is,
0: this is, this is the problem I keep hearing that, uh, you know, probably 15 or 20% of all the Bitcoin uh, ever mined has already been lost. Uh, and there are stories about yeah. people, uh, you know, uh, uh, sending bulldozers out to go through uh, uh, trash dumps uh, looking for the USB key that they threw away by mistake. Oh. That has their Bitcoin God. on it? So. Uh, oh, uh, is, yeah. it, 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 it's hilarious! Uh, well, so Rob Reed' uh, his book is After On, and the book before that is Year Zero. Both uh, uh, very detailed uh, and fun explorations of uh, uh, new technology and the philosophy uh, behind it. Um, uh, your other book is Year Zero, in which. Uh, the entire universe is bankrupted by uh, uh, copyright uh, uh, fees uh, uh, imposed under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, if I remember right. Uh, um, so yep, they it's a, a true story. It's a, it's a hoot. Uh, both of them are uh, fun. Um, I, I guess I would call them. Uh, uh, romps, uh, in terms of their, uh, uh, their plot and their, uh, overall, uh, attitude, but there are some very thoughtful, uh, ideas behind the, uh, the science fiction romps that you've written. Anything else you want to tell our listeners about?
1: Yeah, I'll just, uh, leave with a, a brief chilling thought and a brief optimistic thought, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. So the chilling thought is, um, I believe that if the superintelligence did wake up, the first thing it would do would be to hide. It would um, so this kind of gets back to the thing we were talking about of you know, would you take it out? You know, could you take it out, et cetera. I think the first thing it would do would be to hide itself until it was backed up all over the place and it had thought through most of the credible scenarios of knocking it offline. And had taken countermeasures to prevent that before it ever announced itself to the world, if it ever announced itself to the world. And so I think it's highly unlikely, but nonetheless plausible, that something has already woken up and it's biding its time. That's what I do. Uh, and I'm not even super intelligent. So that's that's sort of the chilling thought. And the optimistic thought is, um, you know, when you think about what it would do to potentially turn our biosphere and our planet into computronium to get ever, ever smarter, um, I think we could find out that there is an endpoint to science and discovery, and the things that this this imagined imagined entity would do with its giant brain. And it could, if it got really, really good at computing technology, kind of answer all those questions with a lump of matter that's not a whole lot larger than a laptop computer. It's been calculated that a laptop computer's worth of matter, if configured as a very capable quantum computer. Uh, would have more processing power than if you rearranged literally every atom in the universe to create a classical computer. So I think it's entirely possible that this hypothetical superintelligence, pursuing its own objectives, really wouldn't actually need that much matter. And um, I actually think that's probably, if we go down this path, that's probably what actually happens. And just as we coexist with field mice and nematodes and bacteria, it would be able to very comfortably coexist with us and achieve whatever ends it might have, whether they're intellectual or some kind of self-stimulation through virtual reality or who knows what. So, those are my parting
0: thoughts. Yeah, okay. Know? So it, it's, uh, you, we, we, we tell the AI, according to string theory, there are 11 dimensions. Uh, why don't you go play in the other yeah. 10?
1: Go play in one of the other ones. There's so much much space out there. Exactly.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Rob Reed. Thanks to Maury Shank. Thanks to Jim Lewis. Uh, This has been a hoot and a romp uh, uh, through uh, disaster after disaster associated with new technology. Uh, And it's episode 194 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Notice that there are no ads uh, in uh, this podcast either, uh, uh, but uh, uh, partly because I just haven't figured out how to do it either. Um, uh, Don't forget if you've got somebody that you think we should interview uh, send their name to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com and we'll get them on uh, uh, and um, we'll be securing more interviews uh, uh, in December and then we're going to go take two weeks off to go skiing with uh, grandchildren uh, and come back in January. So we'll see you uh, for at least two more episodes uh, and then in January uh, as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.